You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley. <laughs> you have to redo that. <laughs> That's okay. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. You got to remember, Lydia. Lydia is going to listen to this someday. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Speaking of okay. things that are yeah. eternal. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, okay. Deep breath. Okay. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host in a totally normal voice, Jen Wilkin and JT English. How's it going? <laughs> hey guys, it's what's going up? Pretty well. Yep, it's going pretty well. Great. You guys have flip phones or smartphones? You guys on the Razor? Okay, what is the story? What's the story? The flip phone is making a comeback. Is that what's going on? Yeah, I mean, people are out there. They're flipping these phones now. And now they got these phones where they like accordion in the middle. They got all sorts of phones. I got to tell you, my first phone was a flip phone. It was a Razor. You guys ever have a Razor? No, I had a Nokia, like a snake phone. Like the one you could play snake on, you know? Remember that? Oh, yeah. 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 I think that's what they called it, a snake phone. (laughs) That's what I called it. I was like, I don't need to call anybody. I just need somebody to do in class. You guys remember paying money for text messages? Yes. Yeah. That was actually some parenting solid gold that we got from being early in the curve with tech because when the kids were able to get a cell phone, we made them get the one where you had to pay for every single text. And so they would get, you know, all the kids who had unlimited texting would add them into their group text and my kids would be freaking out because they were paying 15 cents a text. It was solid gold. (laughs) I love that. I love that. I mean, I think that, you know, the interesting thing is that um, I was reading a book. um, I don't remember. It was maybe three years ago, four years ago. uh, And Andy Crouch obviously has written a ton about this as well. But the book Mm -hmm. was called Enchanted Objects. The guy was kind of critiquing like um, the modern view of tech. And mm-hmm. tech often presents itself as an enchanted object, as an object that can grant you the powers of the gods. And he kind of does mm-hmm. a history of technology uh, going all the way back to like fire and the will uh, and going throughout the history of uh, kind of artifact development and technological achievement to kind of paint every part of civilization as thinking that whatever tech they had in that moment in time, whatever newly developed tech emerged kind of emerged always with kind of a theological uh, or deific or kind of divine bent to it because it kind of had this sense of providing powers that had never, never be realized. Right. And the smartphone has definitely done that. I mean, I feel like what we're talking about today, omnipresence and omniscience, the smartphone is like, do you want to have the powers of omnipresence and omniscience? You can carry it in your pocket. Right? Yes, 100%. I always think of the prophecy, I think it's in Isaiah, where it's talking about idolatry, and it says, He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart deceives him. He cannot look and say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Oh, wow. I think about it all the time. I, I'll pick up my phone and I'll be like, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Yeah. Uh, you know, because we just, yes, there's a, re- anything, uh, my my theory is anything that has like that compul is able to stir in us that compulsion feeling is, is in some way appealing to uh, an incommunicable attribute that we want to take on. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll say a couple more words about that. So why do I, why is smartphone addiction so hard? You know, like, why do we all feel it? That, that rush of anything, maybe, maybe to say anything that gives you a rush of endorphins, right? You know, Um, but even, I mean, but you can look at other addictive things. Like why, why do we like, uh, why do we like smoking drugs? Because we want to (laughs) feel like, 
we, I mean, present oh, company accepted. But like, goodness. why do people, why are people drawn to, to like, um, to misuse alcohol or drugs? It's because we want to feel like we're not bound by time, right? It's an escape from time. I'm so JT, sorry. JT, get back in the frame. I'm you sorry, live why? in Colorado. <laughs> Why do we like smoking drugs? Yeah. Smoking drugs. Why, hey, no, let's look at a milder. Let's look at a milder example. Caffeine. Yeah, let's do why that. do we why do we love caffeine? Because it makes us feel like we don't need to rest, right? Whoa, 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 preacher. Whoa, don't don't hit me with that one. I yeah, can't be so, having you call into question my addiction to caffeine. Yeah. Oh man. Oh my gosh. Okay, you're making a great point. I and, and I want the listeners to hear the great point you're making, but I got to tell you I was oh, not prepared for you to ever say and the whole existence of our friendship in the past or the future. Why do we like smoke and drugs? Drop the G. You 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 said it like you were announcing a, a new rap album that you're coming out with called Smoke well, and Drugs. Well, like with my kids, anytime they would leave the house, you know, I'd be like, "Bye mom," and I'd say bye and I'd say, "Don't smoke." drugs. That was what we would always say. And well, so I guess advice. it feels a little more like everyday speech to me than it does for some of our listeners. Future parenting book uh, right there. Don't smoke drugs. Yeah. Yes. But, 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 but what you're saying, but JT and I lost it. What you're saying, give us the top line summary of what you just said without me and JT laughing in the background. Basically, uh, any, any of our vices, the things that we're just drawn to where it feels like a compulsion, mm-hmm. it's, it, I believe it's rooted in a desire to be limitless in some way. Yes. There's something that we, we want to be released from a human limit that is for our good. And so, you know, the smartphone, we're going to talk about omniscience, which you so artfully teased in the uh, end of Thank the you. last episode. I mean, Thank it was just you. artistry. Verbal artistry. Um, and and we, we think, you know, if omniscience is unlimited knowledge, um, well, it, I mean, it's not even, it's not even trying to hide, you know, what the, what, what Google offers us, what the, what the smartphone in your hand offers you. It's saying you can know anything, anytime, anywhere, and there's no limit to the knowledge that you possess, yeah. you know, and that's why you see all of the, the, um, issues that people have with with information overload and the inability right. to make a decision because they believe that more information will lead them to a different choice. And so, you know, uh, kids who can't decide on a career or, or where to go to school because they're so convinced that they'll find another piece of data that will mean that the choice they made was the wrong choice, right? Yeah, that's good. That's good. I mean, so today we're talking about two incommunicable attributes of God. And both of these attributes of God are attributes we cannot achieve or seize um, because we are limited, but we Mm -hmm. try to achieve and seize them routinely. And that's exactly what Jen has been saying. So let's start with omnipresence. Omnipresence. What does omnipresence mean? Last week we looked at eternality, um, which is kind of a, we might say a, a sister doctrine here for omnipresence, but what's kind of the unique specificity of omnipresence as opposed to eternality? Omnipresence is, is, I think, a simpler idea. It's the idea that God is all-powerful and all-present everywhere. That, mm-hmm. And again, we're trying to contrast kind of this idea of, Bavink does this throughout a systematic theology, if we're not deists in the sense of God is is present everywhere but removed from his creation, he is present in it, he's with it, but he's also not, we're not pantheist in the sense mm-hmm. that God is is in his creation only. He is the transcendent God, he is the imminent God and present Everywhere. So I think I don't have a specific psalm in mind, but you have David continually reminding us of the omnipresence of God. Where can I go from your presence? Should I go up to the heavens? Should I go yeah. to the depths of Sheol? That God is everywhere. There is no place that we can escape the presence of God. And that 
if you are walking in a moment of sin or shame or guilt can feel like a guilty thing. Like, where, I, where do I escape? How do I get away from God? But it's actually this really good news. You can't go anywhere where God's presence isn't going to find you, seek you out, and draw you back to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So he's everywhere fully present. Um, it's not like part of God is here and another right. part of God is there. He's everywhere fully present, and he exists fully present uh, in past, present, and future, which is kind mm-hmm. of like one of those <laughs> makes your head explode. Um And his presence is one of those things. So JT, I think this is something I'm hoping you can help us with because um, a a lot of the verses that we go to to talk about the omnipresence of God are the ones that say, for God is spirit. And even what you just quoted from Psalm 139 says, where can I go? Where can I flee from your spirit, right? Is Mm -hmm. Is in there. So how do we reconcile the fact that God is spirit with our understanding of him as being Trinity? Oh yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So when Thanks. we say God is spirit, we're not speaking specifically or only or solely of the Holy Spirit. We're speaking of the triune God. God, Father, Son, and Spirit is spirit. Does that make sense? No, that's why I God, asked the question. God is a spiritual being. That's right. Yeah, God is not a physical being. So it's not that God the Father and God the Son are physical and the Holy Spirit is spirit. God is an immaterial incorporeal spiritual being. It happens to be that the Holy Spirit is also called spirit in the sense that he is the third Mm -hmm. person sent from the Son who does take upon materiality upon himself in the human form of Jesus. And he then sends the paraclete, the helper, the counselor, the the spirit of God. That isn't to suggest that the Father and the Son aren't spirit as well. So it's, 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 creating a, uh, a dichotomy between the things that are physical, material, or corporeal with the things that are immaterial or spiritual. So God is in this realm of the spiritual. Okay. So then help me understand how I have a spirit and I have a body that is mm-hmm. different than God being spirit. My spirit is not omnipresent. Right. Well, because you've never existed as a spirit apart from a body. Mm-hmm. That's right. And beyond that, even in a spiritual form, you would sp- like, let's just like imagine that your spiritual, f- like uh, that your spirit was cleaved from your body. Like mm-hmm. you went to have like some views on heaven, like r- immediately after death, post or pre uh, final resurrection would, would suggest that you do not have a body in that time between your death and the future mm-hmm. resurrection. In that time, your spirit or your soul still exists in finitude because of its created origin of which God does not have. There is no created origin, right? Your spirit is not eternal, mm-hmm. nor is your spirit infinite because your spirit has been created. Its origin point is an indicator, a symbol, and a grounding of its limitedness, So even if you did not have a body that limited your spirit, your spirit would still have be confined to space and time in a way where God is Is not. not. Yeah. And that's That's, so good. good. That was, I wish I'd had this conversation with you years ago because when I asked the question, it was, I mean, it's a genuine question on my part. It's something that I've never felt like I had a clear answer to. But I do think in considering omnipresence, one of the things that was really revealing to me was the idea of a body as a set of limits. Like fundamentally, that is what a body does. It limits you in, it roots you in a particular place and, and also in a particular time, right? Yes. And, um, and so just the fact that we have bodies means that we are um, not just a little different, but extremely different from God who is spirit in, in the purest sense of the word. And, um, 
so then you start to think, you know, about this issue we were talking about, like with our cell phones and, and, and what does FaceTime do? FaceTime allows me to feel like I'm not bound to a particular sure. place. It makes me feel like I can be in Korea with my daughter and my grandbaby and also mm-hmm. be in Texas at the same time. Yep. That's not bad, right? I mean, I'm, FaceTime is a gift, um, but FaceTime is a, is a poor substitute for actual FaceTime. And because we're limited to our bodies, it means that we are only capable of sustaining a certain number of face-to-face relationships, right? Absolutely. We can only have a certain number of friends. Um, But... Is this a plea for us to do all future recordings in person? Because if so, I'm in. No, but that's what I'm saying. Like this is, it's actually really great that we're able to do this, but we would all acknowledge, the three of us would acknowledge, we would rather be in the same room with each other. hundred percent. Every time. Um, But what can happen is we begin to think um, that like, because on Facebook, I can have 5 million friends who I don't know face to face. Mm -hmm. It's appealing. I think it's appealing to something in us that's really only true about God. Because God is spirit, it means that he is capable of sustaining an unlimited number of face to face relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, or in-person relationships, maybe is a better way to say it, in a way that we are not even um, even vaguely capable of doing. So I think social media promises us something that is only true about God, but that when we think about it as true about God, causes us to worship. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that all tech does is promise the alleviation of need. Yeah. Like just period, right? Yeah. Like technolo- technological solutions have existed throughout the history of civilization for the purpose of alleviating need. That's not a bad thing. I'm yeah. glad that a lot of need is alleviated. Like I'm glad that doctors have instruments that have been developed to be able to figure out what's wrong with somebody mm-hmm. uh, when they go into the hospital. But that is why there is such a disorientation whenever we find there is a limit that even – in spite of all of our technological innovations, we cannot overcome. This is why it's so disorienting when we do realize, wow, even in the midst of being able to be socially connected from Texas to Korea, I still miss this person. Yes. It's like, wow, why is that hurt? Why, why does that feel so palpable? Yes. Our loneliness is exacerbated in this age of connection because we're promised the illusion that we can, we no longer have to deal with loneliness. We no longer mm-hmm. have to experience the need. So when mm-hmm. we do, it seems doubly painful because the mm-hmm. illusion is that you don't have to, but the reality is that you must because it mm-hmm. is a need. Yeah. When we're thinking about omnipresence though, I think one of the initial things that people will ask me is, well, what about the son of God after he assumes yes. human nature? Yeah. Because he can't be omnipresent now. He's got a body. JT, do you want to start us off on this, Jen? I think Jen should. No, I want JT to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, a good question. And this is where I, I think ex- everything you said, Jen, I would say is right, except for in the Christ situation. The the incarnation of the Son of God is a, is a unique thing where we do not want to say he's hedged in, that his spirit is hedged in by his body. That he, because if he ceases to be omnipresent, even in the incarnation, he ceases to be God because he would- I did not say uh, that. I know you didn't. No. You did not say this. You you were saying that uh, to have a body is to be situated. To have a set of limits, yes. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying that in in the incarnation, Jesus does assume upon himself a set of limits, but his spirit divine spirit does not is what i was trying to say yeah. so he 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 maintains his omnipresence even in the incarnation uh john calvin is 
maintains this view, and he's criticized by some Christian theologians, and they call it the extra Calvinisticum. <laughs> but this is something that Augustine and Athanasius and other early church theologians maintained, because if if Jesus in the incarnation of the Son of God in the incarnation ceases to be omnipresent, he ceases to be God. So Athanasius will fit, say things like, he... Uh, um, he isn't hedged in by his body. And he has a beautiful line of like, at the same time that Jesus, the son of God, both God and man, and this one person is nursing from his mother's womb. He's also maintaining and empowering Mm -hmm. the presence of the stars and holding them in their place. And Mm -hmm. so in the incarnation, we want to make sure that we see this as a, as the only unique act. This is the most unique act that God himself would take upon human flesh in human form, but that doesn't mean he ceases to be omnipresent. He is still the all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present God, even in the incarnation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if I could take us, that's exactly right. If I could take us even a little bit further down the trail of the extra Calvinisticum, the, the real question here is the communication of properties. Right. Which is, so when we think about what is true of the two natures. So when we talk, you know, when we think about our Trinitarian formula, it's uh, three persons, one God, right? It's three in one, one being three persons or one substance or one essence eternally existing in three persons. When we think about the doctrine of Christ, we talk about two natures, one person, and there are different views on what the communication of properties means. But Mm -hmm. Reformed theologians, and we think congruent with scripture, have typically upheld the idea that what is true of the natures can be communicated as true of the person, but not ascribed or binding to the other nature. That's right. So what you might say is that when the Son of God assumes human nature, when the divine Logos or the divine Word or the divine Son of God assumes human nature in a human flesh in the Incarnation— it can be rightly said that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is omnipresent. Mm-hmm. His omnipresence, uh, it can be ascribed to the person of Jesus because it is true of the divine nature that exists within Jesus. But it, right. it is not properly attributed to or communicated to his human nature. So it's okay for us to use this language. The Heidelberg Catechism if you're not familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism, I have to tell you, I've been doing a deep dive on it uh, for the last couple of as years. As one it's, does, as one does. Yes. It's a great resource. I feel like it's really neglected. But uh, in the Heidelberg Catechism, in I think it's question 48, uh, I wrote this down. This is the response to it. Since divinity, uh, a, a response to the question, since divinity is not limited and is present everywhere, it is evident that Christ's divinity is surely beyond the bounds of the humanity he has taken on. But at the same time, his divinity is in and remains personally united to his humanity. That's a great, great, great one-sentence summary of the communication of properties or the extra Calvinisticum. Are we going to talk about transubstantiation, yes or no? Well, yeah, we should, because that's the place where this most— I mean, we don't need to talk about it specifically, but this is the place where it—, it like This results in like— a churches, war, almost, like, yeah, like, like war, like churches, like <laughs> dividing, like the issue in in the conversation around consubstantiation, transubstantiation. Wait, I used a view. big word, so you have to you have to define it for us. Whoa, whoa, whoa! If you're not going to define your big words, okay, go ahead. <laughs> so, so transubstantiation is the is the Roman Catholic view of 
of Jesus's body being present in the elements, both his divinity, humanity, the whole person being present in the elements via the benediction and the the, the, the blessing of the priest. Consubstantiation is the Lutheran view, which basically says that the, the human the, the human is present above, with, in, through, and for the elements. Then there's a spiritual view that the that Calvin and the Presbyterian reformers take that that Jesus is spiritually present with his people. So, sometimes his, called the real presence view, right? Yep, yep, yep. Or Zwingli is presenting a memorial view, which which a lot of evangelicals hold today that this is simply memorial. Uh, and this is actually not a, a question of well, what could these elements be? It's really a question of Christology. Who mm-hmm. is Jesus, and where is he present? And so. Mm-hmm. The, the the Calvinist view that that or the Reform view is a better way to say it that that um, Kyle just highlighted for us is this idea for Calvin he's saying that if you're thinking about like let's take take a step back Kyle said the real issue here is the communication of properties from the natures to a person think of a Venn diagram you've got one circle on one side another circle on another with some overlap those two circles represent the two natures of Jesus he has a divine nature and he has a human nature. Everything that you could say about a human accepting sin, you can say about Jesus. Does Jesus get tired? Yes. Yes. Is he located in a physical place? Yes. Yes. Uh, Does he learn? Yes. Yes. Everything you could say about divinity, you can say about Jesus. Is he all-knowing? Yes. Is he every? Is he omnipresent? Yes. I mean, is he all-powerful? Yes. You can take those two Venn diagram attributes— and not apply them to each other to suggest that his humanity is everywhere present or that he is all-knowing in his humanity, but rather this one person. This is the overlap, and this is the. it can sound like a contradiction that should lead to worship, not a contradiction that should lead to confusion. Does Jesus know the day or the hour of his return? No. And? Yes. yes. That's the. That's it. Dun, like that, dun, as soon as you dun. get to that point, that's Christology, and that's also then true when we think about the Lord's Supper. Is that Jesus is present with His people because He's omnipresent and, and manifestly present in the elements via His divinity. He is with His yep. people, encouraging them, nourishing them, teaching them, abiding with them, exhorting them, convicting them. He's present because He yep. is God, but. And this is Calvin and the reformers push back on some of the Lutherans and Catholic theologians is he can't be physically present because that right. is to communicate a divine attribute to a human nature. So mm-hmm. a human can't be in Bern and in in uh, um, Berlin and in Austin. Oh, well, he's certainly not in Austin. Uh, or in <laughs> he, he, he can't be physically present in all of these places. And so, but he can be spiritually present. And this is actually a really, I think, beautiful view of the Lord's Supper is that I, the three of us every single week used to get get to partake of the Lord's Supper at the same church, even if we mm-hmm. were at different campuses from time to time, or if we were attending the same campus. We don't get to do that anymore mm-hmm. because Kyle is pastoring a church in Richardson. Jen is at her church in Flower Mound and I'm uh, in Arvada, but we are partaking of the same Christ. Yes, mm-hmm. that's right. We are that's we good. are partaking of the same nature, and we are being encouraged, edified, nourished, taught, exhorted, convicted, and, and uh, preserved for the Lord's coming by Jesus. And it's the same Jesus present with us in all of our churches. Mm-hmm. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? 
In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. I mentioned the Heidelberg Catechism a minute ago, but I want to read this from the Belgic Confession of Faith, uh, that another document that I feel— Aren't you a Baptist? Feel, well, for the moment. You're all kind of um, like, okay. <laughs> reluctantly and for the moment. Um, so— <laughs> But uh Captain Bapti coming out uh, here with the fire. Yeah, let me uh let me read this. I think this is really well said. It, it, it's a little long, but maybe I can I think you'll benefit from it because I do think this is I think this matters. This is another reason why I I think what's happening, I think people who take the view of real presence, the spiritual presence view of the Lord's Supper, and this is the view that I hold, is that something different is happening in the Lord's Supper than happens at any other point in our worship service. Yes. And I'm not make, I'm not saying it's greater than or less than. I'm, I am simply saying it is something different. If you went to a worship service and you sang all the songs, you prayed, you listened to the sermon reflectively, you read the Bible, and uh, you thought about the sermon afterwards, and you didn't receive the Lord's Supper, I think you've missed something significant. Um, you're shaking your head like no. Yeah, well, I I really like what you're saying, Kyle. I just I struggle a little bit as it relates to not the human words of the preacher but to the divine word being proclaimed. I think Jesus is present in his word in the same way to be present in the elements. Okay, we'll have to talk about that at a different time. Let me read this. (laughs) Christ, that he might represent unto us the spiritual and heavenly bread, hath instituted an earthly invisible bread as a sacrament of his body and wine as a sacrament of his blood, to testify by them unto us that as certainly as we receive and hold the sacrament in our hands and eat and drink the same with our mouths, by which our life is afterwards nourished— we also do is certainly receive by faith, which is the hand and mouth of our soul. I love that. Faith is the hand and mouth of our soul. That's really, mm, that's, that's beautiful. The true body and blood of Christ, our only Savior in our souls for the support of our spiritual life. 
It goes on. Now is it is certain and beyond all doubt that Jesus Christ hath not enjoined to us the use of his sacraments in vain. So he works in all that he represents to us by these holy signs through the manner surpasses our understanding and cannot, cannot be comprehended by us as the operations of the Holy Ghost are hidden and incomprehensible. The feast is a spiritual table at which Christ communicates himself with all his benefits to us and gives us there to enjoy both himself and the merits of his sufferings and death, nourishing, strengthening, and comforting our poor, comfortless souls by the eating of his flesh, quickening and refreshing them by the drinking of his blood. That, that's good theology right there. And JT's wrong. Uh, next question. Uh, 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 if, uh, so you're telling we, me we, that, G, that, that God isn't present in the word that he okay. wrote? Okay. Uh, so, let's run and move on. Let's just, here we go. Here we go. Um, uh, why, let, before we move on to omniscience, why is it good news that God's omnipresent? Okay, can I just like do a double whammy on why both of these are good together? Great. Just a little bit. So yeah. we're podcasters. Uh, what was the first podcast you ever listened to? Serial. Yeah, Serial. What was your first one, Kyle? It probably was, like seriously listened to, yeah. committed, was probably Serial season one. Okay, that's that. I would say the same thing. And so have you followed what's happened with Adnan yep. Syed this last week? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so basically... Um, it was my first exposure to podcasting as well. We were riveted. We listened to every, you know, every new episode that came out. We couldn't wait to hear it. And um, so he was released um, as we're as we're taping this right now. He was released this past week because they um, learned that there were actually two additional uh, legitimate uh, suspects who, who, whose names were never brought forward. And one of them is even physically tied to the scene of the crime, um, or is, re, is tied to the scene of the crime because of a family, um, tie. So it's like this bombshell, right. That comes out. And the whole thing with cereal was that you got to the end of the season and you're like, well, man, I have no idea what really happened. Right. Right. And the implications of God being omnipresent, so everywhere fully present, and then holding all knowledge means that at no point in Adnan Syed's case has God not been the consummate eyewitness and also Mm -hmm. aware of every single fact. And, And I mean, to me, that's like, wait, that's amazing. Like that whatever, to our listeners, whatever your situation is, you know, where you wonder, does God see or does God know? The answer mm-hmm. is profoundly yes. I mean, and it's, a tes- it's attested to throughout the scriptures. You go back to like, uh, we're doing a study on Exodus right now um, in women's Bible study. And we just saw the whole thing where the cries of um, the Israelites reached the ears of God and were reassured that he heard their cries, he saw, he knew, and that he was going to be faithful to act. And so when we reflect on um, God as the just judge, which we'll get to when we get to his communicable attributes and talking about his justice, one of the reasons we can know that this is profoundly true about him is because his omnipresence means he is not just the judge. He is also the eyewitness. Um, And not only that, but he doesn't need a jury or he doesn't need a defense attorney to present facts and then a prosecutor to present facts because he holds all of the facts and he holds them all in in, in perfect um, order. So um, it's just when the more you meditate on it being true about him, it reinforces your sense of him being mm. able to administer justice perfectly. Um, but also you just begin to realize um, uh, what good news it is. Mm. I mean, it, it's good news for, for the believer. Now, for the unbeliever, for the wicked, it's really bad news, right? Yep. Because yep. it means anytime that you've said to yourself, no one will know or no one will see, you're wrong. Whew, that's good, Jen. That's really good. 
I waited to say that while you were talking about communion the whole time. <laughs> hey, can I, I, I actually prepared really well for this one. Can I read something that Augustine says uh, yeah. in his commentary on the Psalms about this? Yeah. No, don't care. <laughs> okay, so this is Augustine. Uh, he's, it is a commentary on Psalm 74. I'm going to kind of bounce. It's a long paragraph. I'll bounce around, but it's good. And it highlights what you just said, Jen. Do not think then that God is present or knowing only in certain places with you when you've been good or the kind of person you've been being evil or good, him mimicking those things. There you have a judge in your own heart. When you want to do something bad and you withdraw from the public and hide in your house where no enemy can see you from those parts of the house that are open and then visible, and then you remove yourself into your own private room. But even here in your private chamber, you fear guilt. You feel a sense of direction. So you withdraw even further into your heart and there you meditate. But he is even there more deeply inward in your heart. Hence, no matter where you flee, he is there. No matter what you've done, he knows. You would flee from yourself, would you? Will you not follow yourself wherever you would flee? But since there is one even more deeply inward than you yourself, there is no place where you can flee from an angered God except to a God who is pacified. There's absolutely no place for you to flee to. There's absolutely nothing he doesn't know. Do you want to flee from him? Rather, flee to him. Ooh, Isn't that last line good? So good. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the good mm-hmm. news of both omnipresence and omniscience mm-hmm. is to, to, to go back to Jen's succinct explanations, God sees and God knows, and he's still not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. That's good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we don't have to run from him. We get to run to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Well, we've gotten to the good news of omniscience and uh, as we've talked about the good news of omnipresence, but I want to make sure that our audience doesn't miss just like a working definition yes. of omniscience and maybe just a few of the hurdles that typically come up when you consider it. What does omniscience mean? God knows everything. Yeah. He knows everything. Okay. Um, and, but I think it's, you know, important to distinguish. I was thinking I needed to find my favorite Tozier quote about this. Um, he knows all things instantly and effortlessly. He knows all contingencies. He know, you know, I mean, the, the number of things that he knows, I think we don't always meditate on. And if we did, it would be to our great benefit, but that he knows all things. And it ties into his being eternal, right? If he knows all things, he knows all things uh, in all time. Uh, if he's omnipresent, he knows all things in all places. Um, if he is immutable, he knows all things perfectly with no change in his knowledge. His knowledge does not increase or decrease. Um, mm-hmm. He knows all things macro. He knows all things micro. Um, I think just the, the, we think of, if you think of um, someone you know, or maybe you yourself are an expert in something, like when we think about expert level knowledge, um, and you think about the admiration you have for someone who knows expert level content about a particular subject. So I, I think about my son, Matt, like it's weird to have a kid who you're like, Wow, he knows things that he can't even really explain to me because it would take so many setup conversations for me to even understand, you know, what he's doing in his day-to-day work. And then you think that God is not an expert just in one thing. He is an expert in all things. Yeah, that's right. That's nuts. And and he didn't learn any of it. Mm-hmm. He knows it all because he's its origin. And um, right. that's big knowledge right there. That is big knowledge. Uh, yeah. Um, omniscience, God knows all that is, all that isn't, all that could be, all that would be. God knows everything. Um, I had some notes in here to talk about something 
fancy pants, but we're going to avoid it right now because we're running high on time. But you know, let me just – let's deal with some hurdles. If God we knows We can talk about my dissertation later, Kyle. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, did I say boring? Um, uh, I can't tell you how many people have had to say like that Jen wanted to write a dissertation on naps when she learned it when she was reading my dissertation. Yeah. yeah. I've gotten like 15 emails about that. You That's guys are all a bunch quote. of punks. Yeah. Uh, uh, if, uh, if Jabroni's God knows over every- here. Uh, some people sleepy say, just looking at you. Some people will say if God knows everything, then – is he cruel or is he powerless? The reason that they'll ask this is because there's kind of a working assumption that um, brokenness, evil, wrong, hurt, sorrow, suffering, that if God knew that these things, uh, the, if he knew that they are, meaning that mm-hmm. like they happen and are happening mm-hmm. and knew that they would be, um, then the question is like, why wouldn't he intervene? Mm-hmm. So some people will call into question the omniscience of God. And you may feel like, well, I've never really thought about that. But like, let me tell you something. There's a lot of people out there who will will, will uh, give up the omniscience of God as a end run around what is sometimes called the problem of evil or the problem mm-hmm. of suffering. They'll go, well, a simple way to do this is just to acknowledge that God doesn't know everything, that he has limited knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, that's – scripture's clear. God knows everything that is, everything that was, everything that will be. You, mm-hmm. So you can't get around it that way. Mm-hmm. So some will go, well, if he knows everything, then is he cruel? Or if he knows everything, is he powerless? Well, we've already talked about omnipotence or we're talking about omnip- omnipotence next week. Um, no, God is all-powerful. Um, mm-hmm. So is he cruel? I think that does raise a pastoral question. And I don't want to try to answer it philosophically. There are really good philosophic arguments to to make on this point. Mm-hmm. But I think that what we should understand is that like oftentimes when we're experiencing suffering, the reality that God knows all does not appear to be immediately comforting to us. Right. Because suffering has a way of understandably creating a kind of tunnel vision mm-hmm. around what we're experiencing in any given moment. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult for us to understand how, if that is what we're experiencing, that there would be any way in which a good God would knowingly allow us to enter into that without intervention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes when the clouds begin to part and the fog begins to lift, we begin to understand that there is great comfort and that God mm-hmm. knows what we're experiencing and knew that knew that we would experience it because it means that God was with us through it, mm-hmm. um, that he, his presence wasn't – like he wasn't elsewhere. And this is connected to omnipresence. Like God isn't away from us when we're suffering. It's not like he when – we, when we suffer, it's not as if God has left the room mm-hmm. uh, or it's, as, it's not as if he's inattentive. Mm-hmm. He is with us both generally in his omnipresence and for the believer specifically in the presence of the Holy Spirit, which indwells us, and he's knowledgeable in it. Um, He understands it and he knows that we are experiencing it and he knows better than we are, better than we could, what the experience of that is and what it would mean. Yeah, I think this ties in to our previous conversation about God being eternal, right? Uh, I think about the words of Job when Job um, gives his complaint after great suffering, and he's entitled to his complaint, right? I mean, uh, but God answers him with um, a a declaration of his transcendence. Uh, And Job's response is, is interesting to me. He says, I am of yesterday and know nothing. 
meaning I am time bound and limited in my knowledge, right? And I think how so much of our questions about is God can God possibly be good if he is omniscient and omnipotent, but I don't see him act, goes back to what Job articulates. It's um, We forget that we have 70 or 80 years in which God has placed eternity in our hearts. We have a longing to see all of this resolve and to understand it all, but we can't even fathom what he's done from alpha to omega. Like we, mm-hmm. you know, our ability to even process what's happening because we are time bound and we're not eternal um, because we are only holding a small handful of facts. Like go, go back to my, my illustration of Syed's case. They only had partial information, right? And now they have additional information, but still only partial information. And it's possible that Adnan Syed will go to his grave without us ever knowing exactly what happened in in this case, right? And that everybody involved, that that family that lost a daughter will never see the resolution of of their wondering about what happened. Um, But when you think about an eternal God who exists outside of time, it means that we don't, we, to ask the resolution to come within our lifetimes, um, Maybe asking for something that where where God has a longer timeline in mind, yeah. um, and I know that that I don't say that to diminish at all. I think the people who right. ask the question about this are coming from they have a very good reason for asking it, and it is not wrong to long to see everything make sense and be made right in the short term. Um, yeah. But I think we forget that it is short. You know, that's why it's so irritating in the New Testament when when uh, Paul will say that our light and thing, what we're enduring is light and momentary. It's like, mm-hmm. uh, no, it's not. Yeah. You know, jerk. Yeah, yours might be, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in an eternal sense, it is light and momentary. And so he's actually being gentle and faithful to remind us of that because he knows we don't, it doesn't feel like that. I don't think he's saying it to try to make us feel that way. I think he's saying, I know it doesn't feel this way. I'm, I'm trying to point you toward a truth. Um, so yeah, um, but I do think when you think about the God's eternality, um, and how we are, not only are we limited by time, but our perspective is therefore necessarily limited, um, because we're limited by time. And then not only are we limited in knowledge, but our perspective is necessarily limited. If you can ever think of a situation in your life where getting more information changed the whole way that you thought about a particular situation, then it's worth asking the question, if I held all knowledge like God does, would my current um, situation that makes zero sense, uh, might it make sense? That's exactly right. We also don't want to divorce this problem of evil. I'll do this quick, Kyle. Yeah. No, it's a big question. Everything you just said, Jen, I agree with wholeheartedly. But we don't want to ask the question as if we're asking, like, is God going to act? If God is all-knowing, if God is all-powerful, if God is, is good, is he going to act? The, the center of the Christian faith is the confession that God has acted. Mm-hmm. And he's acted in the person and work of Jesus. And one day, every tear from our eyes will be wiped away. Death and sickness will be no more. And so the timeline looks a little different. But for all of us who've experienced the pains of death, the pains of sickness, the pains of sorrow, lament, and grief, for those of us who are in Christ, we can have full confidence that God has definitively ended evil. God mm-hmm. has definitively ended death. And one day death will be no more because Jesus mm-hmm. Christ has risen from the dead. And those of us who wrestle with the question of evil, and those of us who wrestle with the question of darkness in this world, will one day stand over death's grave and say, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Yeah, that's good. That's good. 
Well, um, we hope that you've enjoyed this meditation on omnipresence and omniscience. If you want to look for Knowing Faith, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Leave us a review over at Apple Podcast. Drop a question in there. We'd love to consider it for a future Q&A episode. Uh, don't miss our sister podcast, the Family Discipleship Podcast with Adam Griffin, Chelsea Griffin, and Cassie Bryant. They're in their second season. A few weeks back, they had an episode with Pastor Steve Stegall, who is a former college coach with SMU football. And it was on kids, family discipleship, and sports, which is not a contentious topic for families at all. So, uh, But I found it to be very, very wise and very helpful. So go check that out. In our next episode here on Knowing Faith, we'll be joined by Australian pastor and writer Adam Ramsey to talk about the glorious reality that God is sovereign and omnipotent. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace and peace.